Okay, let's go into Dr. DeFusco's case. 34-year-old woman who was diagnosed in April of 2004 with breast cancer. It was actually a four-centimeter primary. The proliferative rate was 70%. She had extensive lymphovascular invasion, high-grade lesion, ER positive. It was actually ER positive, PR positive, and the HER2 was three plus by IHC. She had three of 20 positive lymph nodes at the time of the dissection. No family history, breast or ovarian cancer, otherwise perfectly healthy. Came in, this woman was, I need to get treatment, I need it now. We talked about the NSABP trial, which was ongoing, looking at Herceptin versus no Herceptin. She didn't want anything to do with the trial. And so she got treated at that point with dose-dense AC followed by Taxol. She had lumpectomy. AC times four, Taxol times four, dose-dense radiation, then went on tamoxifen. Retained her menses. We've talked about the soft trial. We talked about ovarian ablation, and she doesn't want to do that. She came back in in April for her routine follow-up, was clinically NED, and the question came up about whether we should start her septin now, two years after the fact. And I have wrestled with this question because I would say that in other patients where this issue has come up, I've been pretty definitive about not starting it if it's been this long after they've had their initial therapy. But in this woman who's young and at high risk, clearly at very high risk, I'm kind of thinking about whether I should do this. And so we decided to get her a mammogram. I also got a breast MRI, and we talked about restaging her. It took her two months to call me back. Actually, this week she called me back and wanted to get the restaging studies done because, you know, I told her if I was going to even think about doing it, we'd have to restage her and make sure there was no evidence of disease at this point. And so she came to the decision she wanted to get the restaging studies done. That's in process. And so the big question is, do I start her at this point with reception or not? I don't have data. You said she was at 2004 she was yeah. diagnosed. Yeah. So she finished chemotherapy in mid-2004 in the wake of ASCO 2005. In May, you could have treated her. She right. would have been within that one-year interval. She wasn't as compliant with her follow-up as she should have been. Could we backtrack a little bit? And could you talk a little bit about the woman herself, what her life situation is? She's a young woman. She's single. When she comes in, if there's any delay, she gets anxious. She wants to leave. If there's any problem with her scheduling, she's out the door. She doesn't like to come in. She doesn't like to follow up. What's her family situation like? I've never met anybody in her family. Always comes in by herself. What type of work does she do? She's worked, actually, she does some grant management work and grant writing for some nonprofits. And has she gone out on the internet trying to get information, or is she more looking to you? No, she's smart, and she gets her information, and so she's been doing reading, but she's not one of these people that comes in every time with their six pages of everything they got from the newspaper or the internet. So she's pretty selective about what she looks at. Has she brought up, or have you thought about the issue of her hormone therapy? We have. I've talked to her a number of times about that, about whether we should do hormone suppression, because she still retains her menses. And the issue has been that she's very concerned about losing her libido. And so that is very extremely important to her, and she doesn't want to consider ovarian suppression if it might cause her to lose her libido. What about future childbearing? It's in the cards. I mean, I think she hasn't ruled that out, but there's been no immediacy to that decision. How do you think she coped with the diagnosis of breast cancer? She had a very tough time. I mean, there's been this kind of almost the antagonism, just this edge when she comes in. And so she wanted her treatment, you know, get, let's do it, let's get it done. Even coming in for the exams, you know, do you have to examine me? I just want to, you know, I'm here for my treatment. Am my counts okay? Let me get going and let me get out of here. 
Why was it that she did not want to participate in the adjuvant herceptin trial? She got the information about the trial, and she just didn't want to do it. I think part of it was because we talked about doing it dose-dense, and versus on the trial was going to be a six-month chemotherapy plan at that point, and I think that was part of the decision. She just wanted to get her chemotherapy done and over with. It's interesting. I've heard a number of cases, particularly in the New York area, of people who didn't want to go into the adjuvant herceptin trials because they wanted dose dense. And I guess, Joey, now finally we're starting to get some data of dose dense with trastuzumab. What's your take on that? Well, we have 100 patients or so. Doesn't appear to be any increased toxicity from a cardiac point of view in that very small subset. I have not changed my practice based on that 100 patients because I don't think that's enough personally. For patients who are going to go ahead with Herceptin, I still have been using Q3 week for the AC part, and then they're getting weekly paclitaxel anyway for 12 weeks. I think any difference that you could see in the benefit of the chemo would disappear entirely because of the swamp out effect of the Herceptin. So that if you were to do a comparative trial of dose dense versus Q3 week for the first part of this, with the presence of Herceptin, you'd probably see no difference. So because of that, I feel very comfortable from a safety point of view, viewing safety first. You have a lot more data on many more patients from the several Herceptin adjuvant trials. So that's my rationale for using it Q3 for the AC part. But this patient, in our practice, prior to ASCO, at the time of the release, or right when we came back, we all sent out letters, I'm sure all of you did in your practice, we sent out letters to anybody who had finished chemotherapy within a year. And so this patient would have been brought back or on her follow-up visit would have been offered Herceptin at that time. And I would have leaned on that patient to do Herceptin. And perhaps you did and she wasn't keen to do it or whatever the thought process was. But Sounds like she was lost out there and right. not available. Right. But I really think that even a year and a half out with a high-risk breast cancer, one could make an argument without any evidence because so many of these patients are going to relapse. Not all of them are going to relapse within the first two years. Some of them are going to relapse within three to four years. That the risk is high enough with the three positive lymph nodes and the size of that tumor to warrant using it in the absence of definite evidence of benefit. So this patient goes to see you for a second opinion now at two years. Yeah, I would still offer it to her. You would offer it? Yes, I would. And I know I'm in an evidence-free zone. I understand that. And I would also lean on this patient for ovarian ablation and aromatase inhibitor therapy because I think there's some evidence that that's better for the HER2 new positive subset that these patients are relatively tamoxifen resistant. The third thing I would do is lean on this patient to pursue genetic counseling because that would make a big impact for her breasts and ovaries and that could make the issue of her preserving fertility, a bit of a moot point. I recognize that you have a goal in mind that's not always agreed upon with the patient, and you have to kind of negotiate this. And I think at some point you'll have to drop the Herceptin issue if she said no enough times and enough time goes by, you'll have to drop it. But I would keep harping back to the ovarian ablation and the genetics, and I really tend to bring this up relatively unrelentingly. And just to clarify, it's interesting you said genetic counseling as opposed to just straight genetic testing. Is that your preference to have them go see a genetic counselor? Yeah, we have a program where we've, that I'm the director of that we've now counseled, I think, over 1,000 women. And I have a nearly full-time genetic counselor and a full-time intake coordinator and a separate person who works part-time as well to run our program. One final question. She comes to you and it's three years later. Three years later, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage Herceptin at that point. 
Dabu, could you track through all the things that Joanne just talked about and what your thoughts are? Sure. Well, the first issue of the timing of Herceptin following chemotherapy, it's a continuum. I think that the further away you get from it, the less benefit you're going to have. We did learn from the extended hormonal therapy studies that you can influence the natural history of the disease even five years out. Now, the natural history of hormone receptor positive disease is different in terms of the annual hazards. They tend to be smoothed out and spread out over a longer period of time, whereas a HER2 new positive population, just like with high grade and other high risk features, the hazards of recurrence tend to be more prominently distributed in the first few years. So having said that, I think that she's at a point where she still theoretically could derive a benefit. If you were to calculate her residual risk of recurrence at this point, it still is significant. And if you believe that as with hormonal therapy where your relative reduction in risk is still the same when it's far out and someone who hasn't yet recurred, you might then project that you could cut whatever residual risk she has in half or maybe by 40%. So I would still offer it to her, but I think there's enough uncertainty that it's not the sort of thing that I'd be doing for all my patients. I'm not calling up all my patients that are two years out to bring them in. But I, in someone who's insistent on looking at every possible benefit, this is exactly the kind of discussion I'd be having with them, is exactly what I told you. And if this all made sense to someone that Theoretically, there could be a benefit, but we haven't proven it. Yet what we do know is that the toxicity is going to be the same as we saw in everybody else. There's no reason to believe that'll be any different. So that even though we can't assure her that the risk-benefit balance is going to be the same as we saw in the trials, that if she is willing to go by that theory and herself is strongly motivated to do it, I think that at this point in time, I would offer it to her. As time goes on, I believe, again, it's a continuum. The benefit probably slips down below the threshold where now the harms might exceed the benefits. And who knows when that happens? Is it at three years? Is it at four years? Is it at five years? I don't really know. But generally, you can say that it does diminish over time. And I guess we've become much more sensitized to the time course of recurrence because of what we've seen with hormone therapy. And you hear people saying the truth that HER2-positive disease recurs early, but in terms of trying to calculate what the residual risk of relapse is at different points in time, for example, a patient like this who's at it two years, what fraction of her relapse risk do you think she's already gone through? Well, we can actually look at the annual hazards from both the American Cooperative Group studies as well as the HERA, which was presented at ASCO. And if you look at that, two to three years out, the non-Herceptin-treated group is still somewhere around a 10% annual hazard risk, 7 to 10, somewhere in that range. And that's not insignificant. If you multiply that over the next few years, you may be saving in this particular patient maybe upwards of 5, 6, 7% in terms of the recurrence risk. That's a very rough calculation, but I think if you go back and look at the annual hazards, that's about what you will see. So I think there are data out there that you can at least look at the natural history of the non-Herceptin-treated groups. And it's remarkably similar what HERA reported and what the intergroup NSABP reported in terms of the annual hazards. And just to get a second opinion on one of the things that Joanne commented on, what are your thoughts about dose-dense AC, paclitaxel, trastuzumab, do you use it if a patient comes to you for a second opinion and the first opinion has suggested it? How do you respond to that? What are your thoughts about it? I'm currently still sticking to the intergroup NSABP schedule, the every three-week AC. The out for me when the dose-dense data came out and the Herceptin trials were ongoing is the NSABP made a decision to amend their trial, not to change it to dose-dense, but to change the taxol, which had been every three weeks, to allow the weekly. 
And I believe that a lot of the dose dense benefit is due to the taxane schedule and not so much to dose density. And if you look at the epirubicin cytoxan studies that have been done, dose dense versus not, not showing an effect, it further supports the notion that maybe dose density is due more to the taxane component. I can't say that for sure, but I feel comfortable in using the weekly paclitaxel. And it is a longer regimen at six months versus four months. If a patient were to tell me that that is a very important factor for them, then I would probably say, well, at least we have a little bit of safety data with dose dense, and I'd use dose dense. But my first preference is to go with the standard. Do you feel strongly enough that if the first opinion suggested dose dense AC paclitaxel trastuzumab, you would say, you know, I don't think you should do this? I don't think I'd totally turn things around, but I'd share with the patient exactly what I told you. Now, certainly if the patient had already started that regimen, then I wouldn't change it. If the patient had been recommended that and was going to go back to the primary physician, I would point out that we don't know and my reasons for wanting to go with that regimen. On the other hand, there are advantages to the dose dense in terms of disease-free survival component of the chemo alone. And one could argue that that would then make the dose dense plus Herceptin even better. So I think you could argue it both ways, and my preference really is more of a philosophical one. I think you could say, well, we know dose dense is better, and we know that the Herceptin benefit seems to be independent of therapy based on the HERA study. I think it's helpful sometimes to tease out just how strongly you guys kind of feel about different things. For example, I'm assuming that if a first opinion said to a premenopausal woman, I think you should get an AI without ovarian suppression, you turn around and say, no, you cannot do that, correct? That's correct. But this is more of a gray zone that you think it's something that might be rational. It's not your preference. Absolutely. When I'm seeing a second opinion, I'm very careful to go out of my way to give balanced explanations to both because you have to be very honest with the patient about both sides of the opinion. And, you know, it is a very delicate area when you're dealing with second opinions where there's a difference in philosophy, but there's no clear data one way or the other. So just to track that out a little bit, this woman has seen a first opinion, Dr. Blum, who's going to encourage her to take an aromatase inhibitor plus ovarian suppression. How would you respond to that thought? Well, this is an area where I think, again, we don't have an answer because my personal preference is actually not to encourage ovarian ablation because we simply don't have the data at this point in time. Otherwise, it really wouldn't be ethical to be doing the studies that are looking at tamoxifen as the standard compared to tamoxifen plus ovarian ablation or an AI plus ovarian ablation. Now, I do understand that the data suggests that HER2 positive patients may actually even derive a larger benefit, but even those data are not as solid as one would like to see. So I actually do not feel that it's mandatory or even highly suggested to ablate someone's ovaries. I feel comfortable treating them with tamoxifen, even HER2 positive. Again, in terms of just trying to tease out how strongly you feel about it, would you say to that woman, listen, I really don't think you should do that? Or would you say, this is an option, it's evidence-based, it's not what I do, but it's not unreasonable? How would you sort of shade your thoughts there in that situation? Oh, absolutely. I think I would go with the option that you said where it's a totally reasonable option. In fact, if a patient came to me with their bias, that's the same as coming with a physician's recommendation. Many times patients have biases too about ophorectomy and they have strong beliefs about it. And I think that in the absence of data, that actually matters a lot. The same thing goes for a young woman who maybe had a family history but was negative for BRCA1 and 2, and you know that there's a chance that this patient may still be at higher risk for ovarian cancer. That may weigh into this as well. This is a young 39-year-old in whom you might say, 
all comers without even genetic testing, ovarian cancer risk is going to be a little bit higher in this person. So that may weigh into the equation as well. Alan, just wonder if you say something about the fact that the patient's ERPR positive and HER2 positive and about whether the natural history of the ERPR positive, HER2 positive is different than the ERPR negative, HER2 positive. When you're looking at hazard rates of recurrence where the ERPR negatives tend to get most of their risk early on, but is that not true if they're HER2 positive, ERPR positive? Do you follow my question? Yeah, the Harris study did report on their early recurrences, and they are a little more biased towards the ER negatives. 48% of the patients enrolled on the study were ER negative, yet in the first year, 60% of the recurrences were ER negative. So they may be recurring a little bit earlier. But the hazard ratio in terms of the benefit of Herceptin in all the studies seems to be about the same regardless of ER status. So yes, the benefit is about the same, but the natural history is different. And I see no reason why it's not going to be the same in this trial as we've seen in many other studies where the ER negatives do have an earlier shift in their recurrence. Joe, and what about the issue of hormone therapy plus trastuzumab? Now, lots of women are getting that in the adjuvant setting. What about in the metastatic setting? And I think there's a trial out there looking at an AI plus trastuzumab. Where are we heading in terms of combining trastuzumab and hormonal therapy? Well, I think you alluded to a study that's ongoing, and there in my clinical practice were patients who were HER2 new positive and ER positive with metastatic disease with not disease that would immediately warrant chemotherapy because it may have been lower burden of disease. I think it would be certainly very reasonable to use hormonal therapy with an AI in a postmenopausal woman with trastuzumab alone before embarking on chemotherapy. One final question. We talked this morning about the lapatinib Zolota study that was presented at ASCO, so we don't need to go through the whole thing, but I am curious about your take on that study and what you think it means in terms of clinical practice when the drug becomes available and also clinical research. Deboo? Well, I think that's a pretty dramatic finding. It almost doubled the time to recurrence and no effect on survival. And when you put it in context of a patient who's HER2 new positive and progressed on first-line therapy, I think that this is going to be an important option for patients. We don't have a formal comparison, really, of an alternate therapy with continuing Herceptin. Ideally, what you'd like is a study where you take someone who's progressed, say, on Herceptin taxane and then randomize them to next-line therapy with capacitabine lapatinib versus capacitabine and continuing the Herceptin. But nevertheless, I think it points to the fact that this is an active combination. I think we're going to have to understand a little bit better how to use it. But certainly in that exact situation, second-line therapy, HER2 new positive, I think that would be my treatment of choice. And as soon as it's available, I'm going to be using it. Joanne? Ditto. And there is going to be like a compassionate use availability of lapatinib for this particular narrow indication. So only for patients who've had prior anthracycline and taxane and who are eligible for capecitabine, who've had trastuzumab would then be eligible for lapatinib. Fairly soon, I think within about a month, that should be available.